scripture reading this evening comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 48 through 58. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from his sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistine saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shireim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites turned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He, he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going to meet uh, the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Billy. Everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. And they will make sure that you get it. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the text. Thank you for this great word. This ancient text, Father, where, where the words were first birthed in your own heart and transmitted to us, Father, through your Spirit. We, we are thankful for this revelation. We pray to always approach it in humility, Father. And we pray to, to press our mind into it in such a way that, that you change us. This is our weekly prayer, our daily prayer, our hourly prayer. That your word will always be like that two-edged sword. That it will always be that voice, Father, speaking to our heart and to our mind and transforming us and changing us and helping us to find the, the, the joy and the beauty and the holiness of living our lives like our Master and our Lord and our Savior Jesus. So Father, give us, we pray in His name, ears that hear and eyes that see. And we do pray it in His name. Amen. Start off very quickly with our statement that we use at the beginning of these sermons. The Bible is not a collection of random stories but one story about God, man, and what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. Now, uh, this morning we started uh, our inquiry and our, our excursion into the life of David. And you'll remember this morning that when Samuel has gone to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons, they parade all of the sons in front of him. None of those sons are, are chosen by God. Samuel thinks it's kind, kind of odd because God said it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. So he turns to Jesse and he asked, do you have another son? And 
Jesse scratches his head and says, yes, I do. It's the young one. It's the one that's out keeping sheep. And as you know, that's David. And David is brought in. The Lord says he's the one and anoint him. And he is anointed. And we read that the Spirit of God rushes over David and grips him as he is anointed king by Samuel. Curious thing about the Holy Spirit. When you see the coming of the Holy Spirit, it is associated with courage. Look, in the Old Testament, Israel is surrounded by the Syrians, by the army of Syria in Judges 3. The Spirit comes over Othniel, the son of Kenaz, who is the younger brother of Caleb, and he leads them to war, and they are victorious. A couple of chapters later, in Judges 6, that same Holy Spirit of God comes upon Gideon, and he blows the trumpet to rally Israel as they go out and defeat the Midianites. And then in Judges chapter 14, just a couple of chapters after that, the Spirit of God comes on Samson and he defeats a young lion and he he grabs the lion and tears the lion. But it's not just an Old Testament uh, actuality. You see the same kind of thing in the New Testament. One example in Acts 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple at the time of prayer. They come upon this lame man and they heal him. And it causes this uproar because they say that the power that came to them in which they were able to heal this lame man came through Jesus. They are taken by the rulers. They're threatened. The elders and the teachers of the law threaten them to not talk about Jesus. But Peter and John go back to the church. They tell what happened and they pray about it. And now we're in Acts chapter 4 and this is what happened. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Now, I, I, I find this incredibly relevant, even though we don't necessarily think about the Holy Spirit and courage. I, I find it incredibly relevant and, and tied to where we and, and when we live in this world. When you think about it, there are more safeguards in this world than there have ever been in the history of the world. In some ways, this world is probably safer than it has ever been. And yet, in our culture, We are just surrounded by people that are freighted with anxiety and freighted with a lot of fear. People are concerned. And they're anxious and they're fearful. We have a lot more trouble and anxiety than our forefathers. So here's the big question. In light of what we see about the Spirit in the the Bible, is where do you get the courage to face what frightens you? Where do you get the courage to face what frightens you? Well, this brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 17, where we find three characters and three different kinds of courage. The first is this. It's the King Saul type of courage. It's Saul and the missing courage. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now, the king is not acting very kingly, is he? The king is, is not acting, you know, the, the robust, dynamic, courageous, kingly part he is supposed to play. And because of that, everyone else is losing heart. So what's going on? Why is the king not acting kingly? Well, Israel and Philistia, these two great historic enemies of one another, have decided that they're going to meet in the valley of Elah again, there on the sort of the plains or the kind of this valley area of the, the, the hill country of, of southern Israel. And you have, you have Israel on the hills. And they're not about to go out onto that flat area. And the reason they're not going to go in the flat area is because 
The Philistines have this iron technology. By the time you get to David, you're moving from the late Bronze Age to the early uh, you know, Iron Age one or the early Iron Age. It is not really until the time you get to Solomon that Israel has perfected the, the technology of carburizing iron or making steel. And so the Philistines have the chariots. Israel doesn't have that. So they stay up on the hills. They're not going to get in that flat area where the, the Philistines can de- deploy those chariots. And the Philistines are not going to deploy those chariots without Israel coming down off of the hill because what if they rolled those chariots out across that field and started to chase Israel? What's Israel going to do from the hill country? Roll the boulders down on top of them. And so they're at the stalemate. And they're at a stalemate for, for, for days and days and days. And then one day, there is a giant, literally a huge man, steps into the valley, a Philistine giant, and he begins taunting and defying and disdaining and mocking the people of God and daring anyone to fight him. I mean, they, they look at the stalemate and they go, this thing is never going to end. Let's just send our hero, let's send our champion out and he'll fight the battle for us. And so Goliath steps out and he, and he shouts disdain and defies God in front of all of Israel. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, that defiance, that disdain, that mocking, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Well, there it is. The king and the king's army are not fighting the Philistines. They're not acting kingly. And so they're not meeting the challenge that confronts them. And if they don't meet the challenge, they will be in, in slavery to Philistia once, once again, once more. Verse 16 says that this goes on for 40 days. 40 days, Goliath steps out, screams and shouts and defies and mocks and, 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 and throws disdainful, blasphemous words at Israel. We're told that Israel gets up and for 40 days early in the morning, they go out and give the war shout, but nobody steps into the valley. Nobody steps into the field to meet the giant. Israel talks a good fight. In verse 20, each morning, the army of Saul, they get up, they shout the war cry. But because they're fearful of being enslaved to Philistia, what they have become enslaved to is their fear. So I think here's a good place to ask the very pertinent question, what is courage? I think that David gives us a pretty good idea in chapter 17, verse 32. He says in Hebrew, Agipil lev adam. In, in verse 32, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. That al-yipil lev adam, the heart of a man, let, let it not fall. That yipil is, is, a word, is, a, is a form of the word nafal, which means to fall or to fall back or, or to fall down. And it's a word that is associated with the idea of being in a battle and being defeated or losing in a battle. And David is using this word because he is thinking about a fight and he is thinking about a battle. And you know the key to any, the winning of any battle is the ability to be able to stand your ground. If you want to win a battle, you can't fall back, you can't retreat, you don't run away. You have to stand in the face of the onslaught as horrific as it might be. Now, from David's word, let no one's heart fail him, 
We're beginning to get an idea of what courage is. It's to not fall back. It's to not fall to the ground in fear during a fight. Now, let's, let's step out of 1 Samuel chapter 17 and let's speed forward to, to Daniel for a moment. In, in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has set up this gigantic statue made of gold and decrees that everyone has to bow their knee and to worship, worship this, this idol. And these three Jewish young men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, say, no, we're not going to bow down to that idol. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, goes ballistic and he orders them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And this is what those three young Jewish men say to him. They say in Daniel 3, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if He does not, but even if He does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They say, these three young Jewish fellas, in front of the fiery furnace, in defiance to Nebuchadnezzar, in bowing down to his gigantic idol, they are saying that they are going to do what is right regardless of the danger or the circumstances. Now that is courage. Now, I might say, I need to save my life. And if I say, I'm going to do the selfish thing, or I'm going to do the wrong thing, but I'll be safe, you may have saved your life, but that is not courage. But if you say, I will do the right thing, I will do the selfless thing, even if I might be injured or worse, but I will do it anyway, we're beginning to get an idea of what courage is all about. Now, in the ancient world, there was a lot of teaching about the virtue of courage. They talked about it with their young people all the time. The virtue of courage was, was a very, very important uh, topic to talk about to the generations that were coming up after you. The reason was these children needed to know as they were coming into this very dangerous world what it was going to take to be able to move forward, what it was going to be like to be able to face with courage all of the dangers that were found that were just all over the place in the ancient world. The ancient world was an awfully dangerous place and there was always some danger to be faced. There were plagues that would just sweep over an entire city and sometimes over an entire continent. There were marauders and there were enemy armies. There were famines and there were droughts. I mean, you just think about the drought that we've been suffering from in South Texas. That would have devastated people in the ancient world. Without the kind of technology that we have to be able to pull water out of an aquifer, they would have been destroyed. Mortality rates. Courage had to be talked about because life was incredibly insecure. And you had to have that courage to be able to live. You had to have that courage to be able to move forward day by day. And so a working definition for us as Christians about courage is this. Courage is facing the greatest nightmare of your heart. And to do the unselfish thing no matter what the cost. When you are a coward, you become self-absorbed. And when that happens to you, not only do you not live properly, but you do not love properly. 
I mean, think about one of the things that Jesus is best friend on earth. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4, he says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Saul is the missing courage and shows us why we really need to have courage. But now we come to the second character of the story, which is Goliath. And Goliath is a counterfeit type of courage. And Goliath actually represents two pieces to the story. He is not only the problem that has to be dealt with, but he also kind of represents this counterfeit or this false type of um, uh, foundationless form of courage. When I think back on 1 Samuel chapter 17 and a lot of the lessons that I've heard and a lot of the lessons that I myself have given, uh, you know, I preached them this way myself, they basically go like this. The giant Goliath represents your greatest fear. The the thing that is a nightmare to your heart. And the very thing that diminishes your joy in life, that's what Goliath is. The thing that's stealing your joy and it has to be dealt with before you can move on. And David represents the heroic figure we need to emulate and he teaches us to be brave in facing the giant. And so what do I have to do? I've got this giant that's stealing my joy. I've got to go out and I've got to fight that giant. And the moral of the story is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The thought then, the thought process then, the logic process then, is that the way you get courage is by imitating great examples. It's emulation and it's inspiration that creates courage. But here's the thing I've noticed over the years in my own life, in the life of others. We do get inspired by the story of David and Goliath. And I mean, we get fired up and we get inspired and we're ready to roll when we read David and Goliath until there's, you know, there's a giant in our life. Why do we get inspired? Because there's no giant at the time. But if there is a giant in our life that is mocking us and scaring us, then this story depresses us. Why? Because we're already paralyzed with fear. I mean, people are saying, you've got to face that giant. And you go, I know. I know I've got to face that giant. But you know what? I don't think I can do it. You know what? You need to suck it up and you need, to, you need to get out there and face those fears. The problem is I'm paralyzed by those fears. Now there's something that is really weird in this text. When you, when you read ancient documents, you'll find that they're completely different from the kinds of stories that we read today. You read, if, if you read any, you know, John Grisham, for instance, or anybody that's kind of a popular fictional writer, one of the things that you notice is that there's this overabundance of detail. I mean, you know, I, I can remember reading a John, one of the first John Grisham books. It may have been The Firm back in the 1980s. And I remember him talking about walking into an office and smelling the Texas butter pecan coffee. And I went, wow, that, that's some detail right there. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 is a weird text. Because it's one of the few places in the ancient world where you find a lot of detail. And here's what it says. A giant named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed six hundred shekels, his shield bearer went ahead of him. 
Now that's extremely rare. You're not going to find that kind of detail in a lot of ancient documents. But a fellow who has written, I think, a fantastic commentary on First and Second Samuel, a guy by the name of Robert Alter, who has basically retranslated the story into um, you know kind of contemporary English, and at the same time put his notes in, and it makes just a fascinating uh, reading companion to First Samuel and Second Samuel in the Bible. He says there's a reason for this detail. He writes in this commentary. The thematic purpose of this exceptional attention to physical detail is obvious. Goliath moves into the action as a man of iron and bronze, an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. And this hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. Goliath is the hero in the Philistine camp. And quite frankly, Goliath does have three things going for him. Number one, he has physical prowess. Robert Alter says that he's over eight feet tall. Eugene Peterson says that he's over nine feet tall. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds. He is huge. Secondly, he's high tech. The Philistines guarded the secrets of smelting iron. The Jews did not have a clue. In fact, at this period of time, there's only two swords in all of Israel. It's going to be a lot of decades down the road before they they figure out the technology of how to turn iron into steel. And then the third thing he has going for him is a hyper self-esteem. Goliath is pretty proud of himself. And Goliath looks at what he has going for him. Nine feet tall, 125 pounds of armor. He has got a gigantic 600 shekel head of of steel or or iron on the end of a, a javelin that makes a point. He is a huge man. He looks at all he has going for him and it banishes all fear. Now one of the ways that we are told in our own culture that you banish fear is by looking at yourself and looking at the kinds of things that you you possess. And that, my friends, is a counterfeit uh, courage. It's a a counterfeit courage, but it's what our culture buys into. I'm going to give you an example. Pull this off of the Internet. It's ten ways to deal with fear by a woman by the name of, of, of Julie Plenty. Ten things. Number one, write down your fears. You can't face it until you name it, right? Write down your fears. Two, what are the things that are holding you back? Number three, listen to yourself talk. Number four, start asking yourself questions. Why am I allowing this to happen? Why am I so fearful? Number five, redefine mistakes and learn from them. Next, seek the company of supportive people. That is, you emulate what inspires you and you need all that encouragement. Read the books about people who have succeeded. Know that whatever quality you like or admire in someone is lying dormant in you. That is, look to yourself and banish your fears. Nine, your past does not define your future. Number ten, list your goals and your actions. Now, you know, there's other examples, and they basically say the same thing. You can do it by looking at yourself and seeing what's inside of you and redefining mistakes and reframing mistakes and surrounding yourself by people that inspire you and getting the courage up and going. Listen, I don't want to minimize the kinds of good things that have happened, you know, from, from 
you know, doing some of these things. I, you know, I don't want to d- downplay that. But here is why Goliath's courage is a dangerous courage. He looks at, at, at David and, and makes the same mistake that Samuel made in chapter 16 when he looks at Eliab and says, this must be the Lord's anointed. Look how tall he is. Goliath looks to himself and he banishes all fear and he does not take David seriously. In verse 42, he has disdained David. And he does it because he is young and red-headed and handsome. And so Goliath is not really in touch with reality. Goliath, in looking at himself, banishing fear, disdaining the enemy, is not realistic. And this causes him to be vulnerable because David is all of those things. He is little, he is red-headed, he is handsome, he's young, plus one more thing. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. David has killed a lion, and David has killed a bear while guarding his sheep. And the problem with Goliath's courage is that it is not an answer to overwhelming odds. Goliath's courage is looking at yourself and banishing fear because it's an adrenaline spurt. But what if you face a Daniel 3 situation where there's no huge prospect for success, it looks like you are going to go down, or, or the ordeal that you're about to go through is not going to be short-term, but it's going to be long-term. It's not going to take just an adrenaline spurt to get you through one or two days. It's going to be long-term. The biggest problems, my friends, that, that we face are not the kinds of problems that will allow us to manhandle them. And there is the threat that we will not win. So how do you hold your ground and do the right thing with all of your heart? That's David, the hero, and the true courage. In verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Now this is not hybrid Goliath courage that looks itself and says, if I'm good enough and faithful enough, God will not let anything bad happen to me. And the reason that's not that kind of promise is because that kind of promise does not exist in the Bible. I mean, just look at John the Baptist. Unless someone saves us from our weakness and cowardice, then we have no hope. And that's what, that's what God does. When David is sent to his armies. That is precisely what God did in sending David to the cowards. He doesn't go in with with bravado and inspire them to rush the giant. No, the Savior in this story is weak. There's kind of this comical piece of, of, uh, of the story where Saul says, Well, okay, you want to go? You can go. Kind of a gutsy move on Saul's place. Very cowardly, but kind of gutsy to allow this, this, this young guy to go. 
But he says, here's what I want to do for you. I want to help you out as much as I can. Here's my armor. David tries to put on the armor, and, and he, he looks like a guy standing inside of a pot-belly stove. It just doesn't fit. Now, the Savior in this story is weak. And He is not victorious in spite of His weakness, but because of it. And secondly, He goes to fight as Israel's representative. What they cannot and will not fight, He will as their representative, as their hero, as their champion. And so basically, the story is really not about inspiration as it is about substitution. Goliath will represent Philistia. David is going to represent Israel. And David is not just fighting for Israel, but also, in a sense, he is fighting as Israel. And they are going to be treated according to what he does. If he wins, his victory will accrue to them. If he does not win, then his defeat will also be their defeat. And he does win. And it fills the entire army of Israel with a confident sense of victory. Not because of what they did, but because of what David accomplished. Hebrews 11 encourages us to to look at examples of all those who have gone faithfully before us. Consider all of these heroes of the faith And towards the end of that chapter, he says, you know, there's not a time to talk about all of these that we could talk about. There's just so many in the history of God's people. But suffice it to look at these and to consider these and to know that their faith was pleasing to God. And then you get to Hebrews 12. And it's not consider, it's fix. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Our hero, our champion, of who David is just a precursor. You know, when you, when you think about our God, our God was the only God who was courageous. I mean, why in the world did God need to be courageous? He's creator. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He's holy. Why did He have to be courageous? Because He became weak. He left heaven and became like us. Did not count equality with God, Paul writes, to the church in Philippi in chapter 2, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And when he entered the ultimate valley of the shadow of death, Jesus was brave in facing the ultimate giant. The giant we could never defeat on our own. And his victory over death becomes our victory over death and our God fills you not just with confidence, but with His Spirit. The very Spirit that fosters courage and boldness. The very thing that Paul wrote to a very young man facing all kinds of giants in the city of Ephesus. And he writes to this young Timothy and he says, God did not give us a spirit of what? Timidity. But a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. Perhaps there are ways that our church can minister to you tonight through prayer or through Bible study. Perhaps you would like to give your life to Jesus tonight and and become one who His victory is something that you accrue. His victory becomes 
your victory. His victory over death becomes your victory over death. His victory over sin is what allows God to look at you and to see righteousness. If that describes you tonight, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them while we stand and sing together.